about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Tonight's reading comes from 1 Kings chapter 18. Um, I'll be reading verse 1 to 29 and Maddie will continue to the rest of the chapter. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria and Ahab had summoned Obadiah who was in charge of his palace. Obadiah was a devout believer of the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of them. Oh, oh, sorry, have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in, the, in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognised him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear that they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, that what what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us, 
Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood and not set fire to it, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down the altar, uh, ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is raising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. 
The power of the Lord came upon Elijah and, tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Well, good evening. My name is Mike, uh, the new guy in town. So if you don't know me, uh, this is my second day on the job, or second week on the job, and uh, I look forward to getting to know you some more over the coming weeks, months and years, God willing. But uh, let me start as we explore this series on Elijah, whether you're familiar with Elijah or not, by just saying this, I wish I could prove God. <laughs> like for all the discussion around uh, whether God exists or whether his ideas are the best for human flourishing, I wish I could just prove God and his power. Sort of like maybe uh, Jedi's. Um, <laughs> Uh, my family love, or my kids love Star Wars, and we're always talking about our favorite kind of battleship cruiser or whatever. And uh, I just wish, like, you know, the Jedis demonstrate their awesome Jedi power, and no one doubts it because they kind of do things, and they see the Force, and they go, wow, that's legit. I wish, as a Christian, I could demonstrate God's power, and I guess it would silence some of the conversation and the frustration. I think throughout Christian thought and history, many have attempted to prove God. Uh, often that's fallen in the philosophical camp and we get uh, people like Anselm of Canterbury, 11th century, comes up with something called the ontological argument. Some of you are already tuning out right now. Um, he tried to sort of argue that if the God that exists is more powerful than the God that doesn't exist, therefore he exists. Okay, we'll leave that. Um, what about Aquinas in the 13th century? He argued with the prime mover arguments that in this world of causations, uh, there was a first cause, and that had to be God, and some people liked that, and some people didn't, and there was discussion. Or maybe you look at kind of the design and the, and the purpose of this world, and you think, okay, there's, there's got to be a direction where all this is headed, and someone behind it all, and therefore there's a God, and again, some people are convinced, and others are not. I wish I could just prove God. Of course, Australians are moving beyond even the discussion of there is a God, you don't need God to live out the great Australian life, I suppose. And uh, people are just dissatisfied and have stopped even asking, where was God when X happened? Because he didn't show up. He didn't help me out. And so people are just stopping to even ask, where is God? The result over the last kind of three decades, and nothing convinces people like a bar graph, <laughs> No religion is being ticked more and more, and if you could believe the 2016 dodgy sort of hacked data, it would say that even 30% of people are now ticking no religion. More and more people are walking away from the idea of God, I wish I could prove that there was a God, that he loves us, and he is powerful. The prophet Elijah, here comes a segue, the prophet Elijah was in the same predicament, really. The stats in his part of the world, in his time in history, were not good. Uh, most of God's people had walked away from God, were now following Baal, a pagan god. And Israel was, I guess, sorry, Elijah was burdened by this deep desire for God's people to come back to God. And he wanted to prove God that he was powerful and that he cannot be ignored. And so Elijah sets out in this chapter of 1 Kings to demonstrate that powerful God to God's people. And if you're not familiar with 1 Kings or Elijah, maybe this is your first week here, and it was great to catch up with a couple people over supper who are here for the first time, 
Um, I'm not going to assume you're kind of all over the Old Testament. In fact, I was in second year at Moore College. Uh, one of the lecturers is here, so I should be careful. And, uh, and I was like, I don't really understand all the details of the Old Testament. Got the big story, but kind of get a little bit lost where the kingdom splits and the kings and prophets and blah, blah, blah. So I made an infographic. It's very helpful, right? Um, <laughs> but if we, if we zoomed in a little bit further, uh, you might be familiar with this guy, Solomon. He built a temple for God, and things were looking pretty good, although it got a bit messy at the end. But after him, his sons are squabbling for power, and, uh, and other people kind of muscle in, and the kingdom splits, and it's messy. Ten tribes of Israel make up Israel, the northern kingdom, and two tribes make up Judah. And as you can see, kind of the red and the green, we've got down the bottom in Judah, uh, a couple of good kings, a couple of bad kings. In the northern kingdom, every king's bad. Every king has walked away from the ways of the Lord. And so God is sending prophets to speak into his people. Would you come back to me? God will not let them just drive themselves into the ground. He relentlessly pursues his people because he loves them. He is gracious, willing to forgive them and have them back. And so he sends the prophets, his prophets, with his word, come back. And that's what we find Elijah. He's the first major prophet to speak to uh, one of the worst kings so far, Ahab. Come back. See, Ahab has married Uh, Jezebel, uh, she's not really great, Um, and if you're looking for kind of a partner or someone to date, look at kind of their godliness before you look at anything else, because Jezebel's a mess. She's come from the kingdom next door, and she's all about Baal, not about God, and she's corrupted Ahab. In fact, Jezebel's been killing the prophets of the Lord, and Ahab's like, okay, I'm cool with that. Jezebel's been purging the land of all that remained of kind of God and his people, so that she might bring about Baal and Baal worship. And then in comes Elijah. And we pick up the story three years after God had turned off the taps. Remember last week, Roger was speaking on the master plumber. God's turned off the taps, hoping that the people would come back to him. They haven't. There's severe famine and drought. And right at the beginning of this chapter, we sort of see where this is going. God appears to Elijah and says, I'm going to turn the rain on him. I'm going to send you to Ahab. And I guess if God just did turn the taps back on and the rain came down, all of Israel would have gone, thank you God, Baal God, thank you Baal God for the rain. That's so far had Israel departed from the ways of the Lord that they would have thanked Baal for the rain if the true God really did turn the rains back on. And so in this story, we're going to find God not just turning the taps back on, but proving himself that he is the one true God and discrediting Baal and his prophets. And that's where we're going to see the action and intensity increase in this kind of crazy and awesome story. The camera zooms in to pompous Ahab, and he's fussing around with his horses. He's quite concerned that they haven't got enough to eat and drink, and that's a real issue. He's fussing around, and he calls Obadiah in, his administrator, great administrator, great worker. But Obadiah is actually a follower of the Lord. And that's a bit of a tough predicament for Obadiah to work in. See, while Obadiah is working for Ahab, he's also been quite concerned to see that his wife is killing all the prophets. So he's hid a bunch of the prophets in a cave, giving them food and water so that he might protect them and and God's people and preserve a, a purity amongst God's people while the rest have gone astray. And Obadiah, Ahab's asking Obadiah to do all these things, and he's kind of stuck in the middle between 
the concerns of his master and the concerns of the Lord, and that's a tough gig. And I wonder if people here are feeling the tension of living in this world, uh, in the workplace, and also having concern for the Lord and his ways. Obadiah goes on to fuss about the horses as well, to carry out the desires of his master. And uh, as he goes out to deal with the horses, he comes across the greatest prophet, Elijah. Elijah, is that really you? Elijah's like, yep, I want to speak to your, uh, to your boss. <laughs> Obadiah's like, are you crazy? <laughs> Do you not know I've just hidden a bunch of prophets in a cave to stop them dying? Do you know that pretty much everyone in the land is looking for you? Do you know I've been like a really good kind of God follower all days of my youth, and, and now you want me to do this? You're going to get me killed. You're going to get killed. This is bad, bad. Elijah says, relax. I'm going to be here when you come back. We'll sort all this out. Elijah, we're going to get to sort of meet him more and more each week. Uh, he's got an incredible character to delve into. Look, I can understand the concerns of Obadiah. Uh, some commentators uh, think that uh, Obadiah is a conflicted and even compromising character, sort of split between the concerns of, um, of, of Baal worship and kind of Ahab and then also kind of the Lord's ways. I, just, I guess I just find here a person on the ground trying to be faithful in corrupt systems and circumstances. He really has acted faithfully, hiding uh, the Lord's prophets away in caves, and he's also trying to be a good and honorable worker for Ahab. And I actually really appreciate that in this text, we have two great examples of what it means to follow God. We've got Elijah, who's just all sold out, kind of bringing the word of God to the people. And we've got Obadiah sort of working on the ground, trying to be a, a faithful servant in, in a messed up kind of world. Obadiah says, all right, I'll get him. <laughs> and Ahab appears on the scene in all his pompous, kingly glory. And he says to Elijah, is that you, you troubler, you troublemaker of Israel? Now, as we're going to get to know Elijah a bit more, he's not one to mince his words. And he sort of fires back to Ahab, I'm not the troubler. You're the troubler. You and your family, you have left and abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. He calls for a showdown, a cage match even. And I'm not sure why Ahab complies to this. Why didn't Ahab just kind of kill him on the spot? He had everyone looking for him all the time. Why not kill him there? Maybe it's kind of a quaint kind of fear of the prophets of old. Maybe he thinks Elijah is going to get smashed here and he's going to make a spectacle of it. Whatever the case is, Ahab brings all of Israel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the other prophets of Asherah and uh, it's going to be something crazy, right? Because Mount Carmel is like HQ for Baal, holy ground. And so here we have Elijah, one prophet of God, Verse the hundreds of prophets of Baal and Israel have gathered to see this spectacle and they're ready to see what happens. Well, Elijah takes the opportunity. How long will you waver, he says to the crowd before him. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. Is Elijah advocating that they follow Baal? No, he's just making a really simple, logical statement. Live out truth. If God is true, follow him. If Baal is true, follow him. If you think this world is just kind of uh, nothing but 
other than what you can see and touch, and this kind of whole thing called existence is just a cosmic accident, well then, eat, drink, and be merry, because that's kind of the logical conclusion of that worldview. But if you think the Lord Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose uh, from the dead, that we might have new life, and that changes us. Our theology leads to discipleship, and you can see our theology in our discipleship. But the people didn't say anything. They were silent. How telling is that? I don't know what to say. They are existentially itching, and a simple call back to the truth of God isn't scratching. So Elijah ramps it up with a challenge. Set up a sacrifice over here, and me here, we'll do some bulls, and we'll put some wood underneath, and whichever God kind of brings down fire, well, that's the one true God. That's a crazy kind of challenge, right? Like, if you're chatting on the streets about whether God exists or not, you want to try that, perhaps? (laughs) That's what Elijah does. It's not normal for God to respond with fire. I mean, I guess he has in the past, like he spoke to Moses through the burning bush, he led kind of Egypt, uh, led Israel out of Egypt with a great pillar of fire by night. And in Baal worship, fire is kind of a big thing too. Like we're going to read in two kings uh, that those that participated in Baal worship would even pass their children through the flames, worshipping the sun god, Baal. Whatever the case is for their reasoning, the challenge is accepted. Elijah's brought it, the Baal prophets of Baal are ready to fight it. Let's do this thing. And so the prophets of Baal go first, all 450 of them. It's it's an incredible spectacle, I have no doubt. And they're kind of singing and dancing and shouting out. Impressive. But uh, nothing happens. This goes on for hours. In fact, it goes on for so long that Elijah starts mocking them. He's a funny, quirky guy. He says, surely he's a god. Surely Baal's a god. Perhaps he's uh, deep in thought. Or busy, and if you follow the Hebrew, it kind of means defecating. Um, Or or maybe he's traveling, maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Sort of patronizing this busyness of the the gods as though they were just uber-humans kind of doing their things, getting distracted. And and I guess implying that the the prophets of Baal have to be really impressive and awesome to kind of stop the, the gods being distracted and kind of be impressed and go, okay, well, I'm going to do something now. And the prophets, they respond with this franticness, this manicness. They start slashing themselves with swords, as was their custom, trying to impress their God, trying to bring down the gods so that they might dance to the tune of the Baal worshippers. And it's a bloody mess. For hours they are shouting and singing and cutting themselves And there was nothing. And the sun set on the prophets of Baal. And the sun set on Baal himself. Baal is an idol. He is a non-god. Elijah knew this. And so he steps up to the plate, into the spotlight. He says, come here, Israel. You can sort of imagine what the Israelites must have been thinking. What's going to happen next? There's this bloody mess over here and now Elijah's turn. Is he going to be like even more crazy? Well, Elijah serves the Lord as the one true God and now it's his turn. And the first thing he does is a beautiful and simple act 
of taking 12 stones and rebuilding the altar. And that's a beautiful picture of God's grace because God could have just brought down the fire even on his people and just got rid of them because they were so wayward. Instead, here we have a picture of God rebuilding Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a picture of God's grace. That despite their wrongdoings, God is ready to rebuild them, to renew them. And without fanfare, and with beautiful simplicity after dousing the kind of sacrifice with water to make it even harder, he just prays. Follow with me the prayer, verse 36. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, the personal God who has made himself known to these guys, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And the fire came down from heaven and lit up everything. The sacrifice, the dirt, the water, gone. This raw power of God for all to see, undisputed, unmistakable. And this incredible demonstration of God's power maybe gives us an insight into just the dire circumstances of Israel. So far had they gone that a simple call, come back to me, your loving father, was not enough. God had to send down this fire that they would go, oh, right, so you're God. It took them this that they might recapture their attention to come back to even the first commandment. And yet in God's impressive display of power, there is grace to return because that fire could have fallen on them. Instead, God saw fit to have it fall on the sacrifice on their behalf. And their reaction is expected. (laughs) I'm with that guy. I'm with the guy who just sent down the fire. He's awesome. That's that's good. But is this a superficial response? Is this just kind of like, ooh, ah? Or are they really turning back to God? We'll see, won't we, as the story unfolds in this chapter and beyond. They say the Lord is God. The Lord is God. But let's see if they really mean it. Because they have been rebuked and invited. Rebuked from their wayward ways and invited to return back to God, because God has proved himself in this story more than he needed to, more than he should have, and more than anyone could have imagined. It is an incredible story, is it not? Now, I don't know you all or know kind of how you're feeling about this. You go, wow, God's amazing. Some of you might be going, this is a weird story. I was cruising the internet this week, as some of us do occasionally, and uh, I was curious to sort of see some of the responses, particularly on sort of atheist kind of discussion sites uh, on this passage, and no surprises, a lot of skepticism on this chapter. And uh, there was one particular blog that caught my attention, and uh, he thought this passage was ridiculous, and he sort of had his own challenge, because in his understanding, if God's the same yesterday, today, and forever... Then he said, I challenge any preacher or prophet to come to a town meeting and to pray down the fire from God. And if God sends down the fire, I'll renounce my atheism and I'll follow Jesus. But if the fire doesn't come down, I 
will ask all the Christians in the room to eat their Bibles, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and join me. (laughs) And then in the bottom of this blog, it's kind of big red letters. No one has taken me up on this challenge. Sort of a victorious statement just there at the bottom. I wonder how you feel about that. I kind of get his skepticism. But the thing is, Elijah serves the Lord as God and lets him prove himself. Elijah serves the Lord as God and lets him prove himself. And that's important for us to understand. Because God is not an all-singing, all-dancing monkey that we wind up and then Addy pops for party tricks and everyone goes, ooh. He is God. He is other than us. He created us. He sits above all things. And yet he has also made himself known and listens to us and is concerned for us and loves us, which means he listens to our prayers and will sometimes answer us. But in the end, he is God and he's not a pet that we put a leash around and kind of parade him around. No. Serve the Lord as God and let him prove himself. And just to help us unpack this part of Scripture and even how to read Scripture, it's helpful to appreciate that if we look back at how God has revealed Himself, that this chapter is just super unusual. If we had a look at all the kind of seasons of great miracles through the Old Testament, we would see kind of a sort of this red zone, uh, Moses and the Exodus, and God did great things demonstrating in great power, uh, you know, leading Um, or kind of even sending the plagues in Egypt, and then kind of with uh, splitting the Red Sea and and the pillar of fire, great stuff. But then there's kind of just normal things happening after that. And then Elijah and his apprentice Elisha also do great miracles, calling God's people back to himself. And then when it doesn't go so well and they end up in exile... God works through Daniel in great miracles, the lion's den and in the fire and all that kind of stuff, to show that God still is God. And then after another season of silence, hundreds of years, God appears ultimately and fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. He does great miracles, healing the sick, miraculously feeding the hungry, exercising demons, and ultimately dying on the cross and being raised to new life and establishing the church through his apostles. This part of scripture that we're reading tonight is descriptive. It describes how God made himself known in that point and time in history. It's not prescriptive. It doesn't say we should therefore then kind of pray for the fire and out it comes and, you know, we'll prove God. And that's actually really helpful because the next part of the episode of this story, it's a little bit brutal and I'm glad that's not prescriptive because Elijah comes down from this mountain, after demonstrating God's power with fire. And he wipes out with the sword all the prophets that led Israel astray as part of God's righteous justice. And as though this was some kind of normal day, Elijah tells Ahab to go back and wine and dine, and he goes off to pray pray down the promises that we started with. Because remember, this whole story began with God's going to send the rain. And so Elijah is there on his knees, praying, pleading, petitioning. Seven times he prays and sends out his servant. Is there kind of clouds on the horizon? 
No, nothing yet. And pray six more times. Even in this story, we see that God is doing things according to his purposes and his timing. So simply did Elijah pray and the fire came down and now we see Elijah pleading. What do we get from that? Well, God is God and he will answer things in his time and according to his glory. And the story finishes with some kind of bizarre sort of scene from The Incredibles. Ahab gets in the chariot as the rain comes down and off he goes back to Jezreel and there's Elijah tucking his kind of cloak in and beats him home. What do we get from that? I guess maybe just a picture of God's people, God's king being led by the word of God again. And we await in anticipation to see how Ahab will respond, how God's people will respond. Will they come back to serve the Lord as God? We wait and see. Well, there's three, well, there's two characters that help us here tonight. Obadiah, who faithfully serves in a corrupt system, in a broken world, serving the Lord as God. And you can't look at his life and say, well, he's proved God. But if you take a bigger picture, you can see God demonstrating himself as he preserves a people for himself through the faithful actions of Obadiah. And is that not a great encouragement for us? Because sometimes we feel so small and like, man, I can't prove God. I can't demonstrate his awesomeness. And yet our stories are woven into his story that says, I am God. And that is a beautiful thing. We see Elijah, the prophet of God, in great boldness, pray down God's awesomeness. And that's a great example also of God working in this world. And of course, all this points to the greatest prophet, the greatest servant of God, who at times appeared to be able to prove God with great miracles, but ultimately served God and let him prove himself. Because this prophet prayed, your will, not mine. I'm of course talking about Jesus. And it didn't look good for Jesus for a while. It looked like he was praying to the non-God, like Baal. Because there he was praying out, God, would you make sense of this? Would you help me? He was jeered at. There was blood. There was silence. It looked like God abandoned him. And yet God hurt him as Jesus served the Lord as God. And God proved himself by raising Jesus three days later from death to new life. So that his name would be exalted above every name. And that God's power would be proved once and for all. And that's the reason why I serve God. Why I serve him as the Lord Almighty. We don't always know why God does or doesn't answer our prayers. But we know the who of who we're praying to. As God reveals himself in history. It's good stuff, isn't it? I still want to prove God, though. I still want to walk the streets of the godless suburb of Erskineville, as the papers would say, or of Newtown, and I still want to say, God is legit. He is powerful. He loves you. He offers forgiveness. So as I finish up, what does that look like? Well, are we not called to be ambassadors of Christ? For as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Now we're going to feel like Obadiah at times in a broken and messed up system. 
And we're going to be praying that God takes our stories and our faithful action and weaves it into his great plan. Just yesterday, I was involved with uh, the Script Union 150th anniversary. It was a beautiful event. All kinds of stories were coming out about people serving God and the way God was using that. And one story really uh, took me by surprise. Well, no, not by surprise, but it was by an older guy. And he was just sharing on a beach mission that he was at. And um, this really sort of gruff bloke approached the team leadership and said, um, I want to speak to the leaders. And that's usually not a good thing. And um, nonetheless, I won't continue that accent because it's weird, but uh, as, as he sort of spoke to the team leadership, he said, look, I work in a big team, uh, commercial team, and there's always infighting and conflict. And I've been watching your team set up in your tents and the way you act. And you guys have a beautiful community. And I don't, I don't get that. I want to, I just don't, I don't understand it. What's behind all that? Is that not what it means to be an ambassador of Christ? Because the only answer to that is Jesus. And as people look in on God's people, should they not see something beautiful, something that subverts every idea about God, that people might see God, they might see the body of Christ. Now, it's not like Harvard University where its reputation depends on only taking the the best and the graduates kind of demonstrate the awesomeness of Harvard because they're the best. God's intake program, he takes the weak, the broken, the humble, the sinners, and he works through them and transforms them. So as being ambassadors for Christ, we're messy sometimes. We're messy a lot of the times, and yet we're praying that God takes us and uses our stories and our actions and weaves them into His beautiful story, proving, demonstrating how awesome and glorious he is. I want you to wake up tomorrow morning in this cliched phrase, say, this is the day the Lord has made. Because tomorrow morning, just as today, is part of God's great story. Tomorrow, you are part of God's story to demonstrate the awesomeness of God. You might not see it in the micro, but thank God that God is sovereign and he's using us day by day, minute by minute. Whatever you feel, pressure, stress, joy, love, God is using all of it. If he can use death on a cross, he can use every bit of our life for his glory. We need not be frantic, but we need to serve the Lord as God, for that's who he is, and let him demonstrate his awesomeness. Through that, let me pray. Father, you know each one of us. You know where we're at. You know our struggles. You know our concerns. Father, I thank you that you have saved us and by the blood of Christ renewed us and transforming us and now we're part of your great story. Father, would you use us tomorrow as your people in this world? Would you show us opportunities? Would you give us boldness? Would you give us courage that we might Take up what it means to be an ambassador of Christ. And may we experience even tonight what it means to be the body of Christ. May we continue to experience your awesomeness as you demonstrate yourself to a world that desperately needs you.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.